A reading from the book of Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a dimly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be crushed until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his teaching. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people upon it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I have taken you by the hand and kept you. I have given you as a covenant to the people, a light to the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to idols. See, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. And now a reading from the Gospel according to Matthew. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. The word of the Lord. Good friends, it is good to be back among you from that region in the world where Isaiah and Matthew and Jesus all lived and worked and ministered in the name of the living God. It was a 17-day trip with 12 days in Syria, visiting 10 churches and 800 million Syrians, it felt like. It was a great joy, and I'll be sharing bits and pieces of the story with you, even beginning today, but especially on Sunday, March 24th, we will gather for a meal and then a time of in-depth sharing about the trip. That will be your best opportunity, not your only one, but your best to hear about the trip itself. Let's go back, though, right now to the time of Isaiah. Isaiah lived and prophesied, we believe, in the 700s, the 8th century before Jesus came. But we also know that the book that we understand as the book of Isaiah is probably a compilation of material not only from Isaiah himself, but others who followed in the tradition of his thinking, because some of the material there shows evidence of news and information about the world that was not present or true yet in the time of Isaiah himself. 
The passage that we've just had read for us is from that second period of the time of the writing of Isaiah. Not the 700s before Jesus, but the 500s before Jesus. No matter what time that this passage was written, the concerns and the issues still are the same. You will remember that in the life of Israel during the 700s, the northern part of the kingdom of Israel was being attacked by the Assyrian Empire, an empire located in the region from which I have just come. The northern kingdom was destroyed, and all that was left was a remnant of the southern kingdom centered around Jerusalem. 200 years later, the Babylonian Empire had replaced, had overtaken the Assyrian Empire, and now the Babylonians have been attacking the southern kingdom and in fact destroyed it. The southern kingdom has fallen around the year 587, and many of the Jewish people, not all but many, have been deported. They have been taken from their homeland in Israel and taken into what you and I would know today as modern-day Iraq, a nation that just over about 12 days ago I was looking at from across the border in Syria. Now, most of us, I'm sure, have never lived through the kinds of events that I've spoken of. We perhaps have never been deported, although there's a couple of you that I wonder about. Some of us in this congregation have lived through war in our homeland. Some of us have left our homelands to come here for a better life. But few of us have had our homes destroyed and our livelihoods stolen and our family members raped and tortured and murdered. Few of us have lost everything we've ever had. Few of us have been taken against our will and forced to live in another place. But that's the time in which Isaiah wrote. That's the reality of life to which Isaiah spoke. I sometimes think that it's very, very important, crucial in fact, if you and I are going to begin to understand what Isaiah is talking about. It's important for us to try to at least identify a little bit, understand a little bit of the feelings of the life situation of the people during Isaiah's time. I do happen to know that every single person in this room has suffered in some way, shape, or form. We have suffered the loss of someone we have loved. We have suffered perhaps the loss of a job. We've suffered the loss of our health. We've suffered the loss of a relationship upon which we depended. All of us understand pain. And so right now, I'm going to ask you to remember your pain. Remember the suffering that you have engaged and use that as a link between the pain and suffering and utter anguish and despair of the people to whom Isaiah writes. Isaiah has a vision from God. Whether it's in the 700s or the 500s, 
It is the same God who is speaking. And Isaiah's vision from God essentially is the same. God says to Isaiah that I, the Lord, never intended for human beings to live this way. I never intended for my world to look like this. I never intended for any of you to be what you have become. Some people would say, well, God, we've blown it. Too bad. End of story. But that's not God's message to Isaiah or to us. God's message to Isaiah is that God is going to send a servant, someone who serves God's purposes, not our own. And that servant is going to be the one who lives human life as God intended it to be lived. Let's not worry for a few moments about who this servant might actually be. Let's focus for a moment on who the servant is in his identity as a being and in his work in the world. God says, I'm going to send my servant, not the servant of some other God, not the servant of some other political ideology, certainly not the servant of himself and his own selfish agenda. God said, it is my servant. I will uphold this servant. I have chosen this servant. I delight in this servant. My spirit is in this servant. I have called this servant in righteousness. I've taken him by the hand and kept him. This servant is someone to whom you and I should pay attention. This servant is someone whom God intends to be in the world and to share with the world what the world can become. Now, let's make no mistake about what this servant is going to do. As Isaiah describes the servant of God here, this is a person filled with peace, with kindness, with gentleness. Isaiah says this servant is not going to cry out or lift up his voice. That's a poetic way of saying this servant is not going to force his will on everyone. He's not going to demand to be heard. He's not going to impose his agenda on everything around him. No, this servant is a servant who will not even break a bruised reed or quench a flickering flame. Isaiah wasn't talking about bushes and lanterns. Isaiah was talking about people. Isaiah was talking about whole societies. Isaiah was talking about people who had suffered famine and oppression and warfare and disease and the possibility of extinction from the face of the earth. Isaiah was talking about people who were struggling to keep it going, struggling to keep it together. Maybe you can identify at least a little bit with people like that. God's servant will restore. God's servant will renew. God's servant will heal. God's servant will love so that God's people 
will be the people they're meant to be. Above all, God's servant will establish God's justice in the land. That word justice for you and me traditionally calls to mind courtroom scenes and lawsuits and making sure that justice is served. That's okay. But in the Hebrew mindset, God's justice is a much bigger thing. God's justice is when everything is the way God means it to be. God's justice is when all of God's people have everything that they need. God's justice is when none of God's people are hurting. God's justice is when the world is as the world was made. Back when? In the garden. God's servant will establish God's justice. How? Isaiah gives us a couple of examples. He says, my servant is going to open the eyes of the blind and bring the prisoners out from their dungeon. Those are just meant to be suggestions, really. The tip of a very, very deep iceberg. Just an idea of the ways in which God's justice will come to reign and rule in the world. Whether Isaiah is writing to northern Israel during the time of the Assyrian occupation and domination, or in the time of the Babylonian destruction of the southern kingdom, it makes no difference. God still holds up this vision of one who will appear to establish God's justice in the world. And so we ask the question, who is it? Who's God talking about? Move forward in history a few hundred years, and a handful of folks have met Jesus of Nazareth, and they've listened to what he said, and they've watched what he's done, and they've observed his life as it has played out, as he has been teaching the people and loving the people and renewing and healing the people and holding up for them a vision of God's justice in their world, in their time, during a time of Roman domination. These people have watched Jesus tried and executed and buried and then witnessed the resurrected Jesus and they said, that's who Isaiah was talking about. Jesus is the servant of God. We believe they were right. We believe that that vision of Isaiah was about Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the only one who has the power to save it all. Sadly, though, many Christians leave it at that. And we say, thank you, God, for Jesus. That's not wrong. You got to start there. But you cannot end there. In Isaiah's vision of this great servant of God, the servant is called the one who was called in righteousness, the one who was taken by the hand, the one who was given as a covenant to the people and a light to the nations. That's who we say Jesus is. The light. God's light. God's justice for everywhere, for everyone, for all of time. And we must celebrate that. That's why we worship 
Jesus as the living God. But then we have to listen to what Jesus said. And we have to watch what Jesus did. And that's where it gets rather interesting. Jesus was teaching folks. He had assembled them on the side of a hill by the Sea of Galilee one day. And he started a long conversation with the people. And at one point in that conversation, he looked at the people who were gathered around them. And do you remember what he said? He said, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others. The light of the world said, you are the light of the world. You see, I happen to think that Isaiah was not speaking only of Jesus. I believe that Isaiah was speaking about the whole nation of Israel. All of those people who knew something about the way the world was supposed to work, and no, badly, no, ba- no matter how badly they messed it up, still, they were a vision. They were an example of who God's people are meant to be. And Isaiah wasn't speaking only about Israel. Jesus appeared on the scene and Jesus said to everyone who would listen to him, everyone who said, I will follow you, I believe you, I trust you, Jesus said, you're the light. Isaiah was talking about you. And he was talking about me. We are the light of the world. We are the ones who say we know and trust and believe in the one true living God, if we do, then we must believe what Jesus said. And we must do what Jesus did. We are the light, for better or for worse, it's us. (laughs) We've printed up a little annual report for everybody to look at that sort of summarizes some of the things that this church has been doing in the last calendar year, and that's all well and good. It's a wonderful report, actually. It tries to say in so many words all the different ways that this assembled family of God's people here has tried to be the light of God in the world. That's what the annual report is. Whether you read it or not, that's what it is. We've tried printing it in a different way. We've tried taking out most of the words and adding a lot more pictures, so maybe you'll actually look at it. (laughs) We actually discovered that the old-fashioned report that had pages and pages of text, nobody read. Not even those of us who were supposed to read it. So read it. Look at it. Praise God and thank God for all the ways in which this congregation, not just as a whole congregation, but individuals and small groups in which we are the light of God. Let me tell you, though, about the light of God as it shines in a different congregation with some folks on the other side of the world. Maybe it'll be a little more interesting than our own annual report. On Valentine's Day, our little group that was visiting Syria got up early in the morning. We packed our things into the two minivans in which we were traveling, and we 
left our hotel in Aleppo. Our destination was several hours away. We would drive through that part of the city of Aleppo that was largely destroyed in the war several years ago. We would drive past hundreds, even thousands of buildings damaged, some completely obliterated by shells. We drove first to the east, out into the countryside, and then we turned to the south and then again back to the west. The reason we had to do that was because the direct road between the place we were leaving and the place to which we were going would take us by the city of Idlib, which is still occupied by forces opposed to the government and still a highway that very few people travel and they do so at their own peril. A five-hour trip really should have been only about three, but to be safe, we made a big circle. As we drove out into the countryside, we drove through several small villages that were completely deserted because they had been destroyed. We drove past more vehicles than I can count, rusted, burned, twisted, mangled by the side of the road that had been destroyed by warfare. We drove past more sheep than I could possibly count because the shepherds and their sheep, regardless of what has gone on, still live there. They still graze by the sides of the hills as they have done for eons. We drove for hours and hours and hours and finally we came to a place called the Christian Valley in the region of Syria tucked up against Lebanon. It's called the Christian Valley because most of the villages in this gorgeous, hilly countryside are populated by Christians. A small handful are Presbyterians who've been there a couple hundred years. Most are Syrian Orthodox and Assyrian Orthodox and Roman Catholic and Maronite who have been there since the time of Paul. We were driving to the Christian Valley, and as we arrived, the wind was blowing about 40 miles an hour. Rain and hail were coming down. It was freezing cold. We drove to a hillside, and we drove to a construction site in the village of Amar al-Hassan. This is the place where the Presbyterian Church in Syria and Lebanon is building a brand new retreat center so that people from all over that region can come to be spiritually renewed and spiritually healed and carry on with the business of living their lives and rebuilding their lives. Amar al-Hassan is that place to which many of you have given your financial support so that we could be part of the healing of that land and the healing of the people who are there. Most of the folks huddled in the small construction building where the architects and builders have set up their plans. Some of us went out into the three-inch mud and into the driving rain and hail so that we could take pictures to bring back to you. That's some of what you'll see on March 24th. When we got to Amar al-Hassan about one o'clock in the afternoon, 
Regardless of the fact that it was raining and hailing and terrible weather outside, there were a cluster of about 15 people who were there to meet us. They were mostly from the small church there, elders and other church leaders, as well as the civil engineer and the contractor, also members of the church who are in charge of building this facility that will be finished in about two and a half years. And as is usually the case when you go to visit folks there, we pile out of our vans the American dignitaries and a whole round of hugging and kissing and smiling and saying hello begins. We had done that for a while when I noticed at the fringes of this group there was a young man who looked different from all the rest. He was standing back. He was tall, maybe 6'4", full beard, strong, virile, a huge smile on his face. We were about halfway through the visit before I actually caught a sight of him that showed me his full body, and, and I saw this smiling face and this strong torso, and then I noticed his right leg was gone. He was holding a crutch. We went to lunch then, and I made sure that, that he got to sit by me <laughs> more that I got to sit by him. He didn't speak much English. That was okay. We had interpreters there. But through the course of the lunch, he began to warm up and share more of his story with me. I was so curious to know who he was. His name is Hassan. Hassan is now 33 years old. But back in 2013, Hassan was a first lieutenant in the Syrian army, fighting in the city of Aleppo. As a first lieutenant, Hassan was in charge of a group of men, and they had been hit by shells and hit by gunfire, and Hassan was trying to save some of his men and pull them to safety, and in that process, he was hit by a shell, and that was the end of his right leg. Over the course of several years since that, attempts have been made to create a prosthetic for him, but it is physiologically impossible to do that. And so now this young man will spend the rest of his life without a leg. Hassan told me that after this injury, of course he had to leave the army, and he went into a life of, of depression, a life of wandering and aimlessness. The doctors couldn't really help him psychologists and the psychiatrists tried to help him. He was lost and wandering and alone for years. But then he came back home to Amar al-Hassan, and there he met Norma and Salem Cassis, an elder and his wife from that little church. And they took him in. He had no family left to speak of, but they became his family. They gave him a job. They gave him a home. They gave him a life. And now Hassan is a bright, energetic, happy young man. By the way, Hassan 
is not a Christian, he's a Muslim. But that's what Christian people do, who are the light of God in the world. They take God's hurting, suffering, broken, bruised, flickering people, and they help put them together again. It was fascinating to watch this retreat center go up and hope and pray that it would become what we want it to become, a place for healing and renewal, but but friends, it's already happening. It's happening because there are people there who take seriously Jesus when he said, you are the light of the world. You are the ones who will establish justice. You are the ones who will give sight to the blind. You are the ones who will release the prisoners. I'll never forget Hassan. Or the millions more like him. Not just in Syria, but in every place in the world that needs God's healing touch. You need that touch. You need that healing. But the world needs you too. Jesus didn't say to those folks by to the side of the hill, wait till you get your act together, wait till you feel good. He said, get started. We have, and we will. Amen. By the grace of God. Amen.